I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Tortoise. Hello, I'm Liz Mosley and I'm back in the editor's chair because unbelievably James Harding is still on holiday. It's Monday the 31st of July from Tortoise. Welcome to the news meeting. Leaders from across West Africa are set to meet for an emergency summit following the coup in Niger. Most of these protesters appear to be in favour of those military leaders behind this week's coup. Great to be in Scotland to strengthen our energy security with more licences for the North Sea, but also speed us on our way to net zero. Russia says Ukraine targeted Moscow with more drone attacks today. Experts say fans attending Taylor Swift's Eras Tour in Seattle this month caused seismic activity equivalent to a 2.3 magnitude earthquake. I'm joined by Giles Rattel, Will Brown and Basha Cummings. Hi, gang. Hello. 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 You're each going to pitch a story from the last few days that you think is important. We'll have a talk about them all and then I will pick which one leads. You can email at any time about the stories we discuss or things we've missed on newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. Let us start with long story short. Uh, what are you pitching today, Giles? Sunak's Scottish cake. Oh, yes. Aberdeen. Yeah. Acorn situations. Yeah. Got it. Basher? Medieval injustice. Ooh, doesn't sound very nice. What's it about? This is about the uh, recent inquest into the death of a newborn baby in a prison. Oh, yes. I read about that at the weekend. Horrible. Will? Coos no more. Coos no more. Are we going to Africa for this story? We may be. Indeed. Looking forward to it. OK, Giles. Take us to Scotland. An aeroplane is taking Rishi Sunak to How Aberdeen. Nice. Yes. How I prefer to travel as well. Today, to announce funding as yet unspecified for a big carbon capture and storage scheme off the coast of Aberdeen. Okay. Uh, he's pitching it as simultaneously creating, helping to create 21,000 jobs or preserving them in what was the North Sea oil industry uh, and helping the UK meet its net zero target. Uh, But at the same time, he is announcing 100 new oil and gas licences for the North Sea, so definitely not shutting that down. And uh, there are a lot of health warnings attached to this story, chiefly. Um, In addition to those extra uh, licences, he is diluting the value of carbon in the UK carbon market. It's a little bit complicated, but all the big carbon intensive industries in this country get allowances to pollute. And the way that's supposed to work as part of a uh, carbon cap and trade market is those allowances are gradually shrunk so that they're incentivized to, to emit less. Instead, they've quietly expanded them. And what this means is that the the price per tonne 
of carbon, which is actually the price you get for storing carbon or the price you pay for emitting it, mm-hmm. is going down instead of up,、oh. and it has to go up to make carbon capture and storage work commercially. Got it.、Um, and then, well, hold on, I'm going to ask some questions. Yeah, this is the science.、Um, actually, just briefly, a hundred licenses. Is that licenses for a hundred different companies or a hundred different? Holes in the seabed where you can projects, get projects. Projects. Okay. So it, it may be a, a handful of companies. I'm not honestly、yes. sure. It'll be it'll be principally BP and、But、Shell and, and, and others. It... Lots more drilling. When、yeah. of course the, the, the political purpose of this is to create clear blue water between the Tories and Labour.、Yeah. Starmer has said he will end new oil and gas exploration in the North Sea. And carbon capture and storage (CCS)、um, it's a process which the Idea is,、um, we produce、uh, lots of carbon because oil and gas, and we basically suck it all back in and bury it in the ground. That's right, and、yeah. you, and in principle, it's a great idea. Yeah,、uh, this does it work though? Can you do it?、Uh, yes,、mm. and it can be done. But、awesome. the only people who've proved it can be done are oil and gas companies,、mm. and they do it to increase the pressure in old. Uh, oil and gas fields reaching the end of their natural lives because if if the pressure in that big system that they've sort of emptied out over the years by extracting oil and gas is increased, then what remains round the edges comes more easily to the surface. Oh, so not like not the market pressure or the sort of demand no, no, no. pressure,、uh, the literal、Actual、pressure in the pressure. ground. Yeah, yeah. Right. So、okay. the ca- the caverns created underground by the oil and gas industry are some of the best places in the world to store. Carbon, if you can extract it from waste flues from、um, fossil fuel-fired power stations, and, and on the seesaw of、um, thumbs up, Acon's coming, loads of carbon capture. That's brilliant. We're locked on for twenty fifty, and a、mm, hundred new licenses drilling the gas. How, how much carbon's coming out of the a hundred licenses relative to that which might go into Acon?、Uh, very hard to. Guess at this point,、um, it, the North Sea as a region is reaching the end of its、um, economic life as an oil and gas source. Yes. So what remains to be extracted is is not the easy stuff. It's not the big stuff. And Labour's view is it's not worth it, especially if the UK wants to lead by example and get to、uh, net zero by twenty fifty.、Uh, I think it it is important to remember that if not CCS, then something else.、Mm. Uh, we're not going to get there. I think it's increasingly clear just by efficiencies, just by switching to EVs, just by building solar panels and on and offshore wind all over the place. There have to be some big, clever systems put in place. They'll cost tens of billions to extract CO two that we have emitted from the atmosphere or per CCS. Uh, from industrial waste streams. Basha, with this story, last week was all about oh,、um, the Tories are bidding off the green agenda because it doesn't look like it's a vote winger,、uh, winner. Excuse me.、Um, so I can't get a read on this story. So on the one hand, Rishi's saying no, no, we're really into the green agenda still. That's why we're doing the Acorn thing. But P.S. These are hundred new licenses. I can't read. What's the politics? What are we saying? Neither can I. <laughs>、um, and I think it's extraordinary that the last couple of weeks have been dominated by, you know, we heard Antonio Guterres,、um, what is he, president of the UN, chair of the UN, secretary general, secretary general of the UN, saying the earth is boiling, 
we're not just it's not just a climate catastrophe the earth is boiling mm. and then you know domestically we hear this sort of yeah giving with one hand and taking away with the other in terms of climate policy there feels like there's no sense of urgency isn't it extraordinary that we've reached this tipping point and there is no urgent bring the greatest minds together and try and figure out how are we going to stop the world from boiling mm. so this feels this this Sunak announcement today just feels like another very pedestrian example of how the Tories see climate it's, it, climate change. It's it's inconvenient for them. They know that a lot of people find it difficult to sort of engage with. After the Ux, Uxbridge by election, mm-hmm. they're clearly saying, you know, we don't want people to be inconvenienced. It's like we're all going to be inconvenienced yeah. pretty soon when the world starts to boil. Well, what do you make of this? Well, I, I agree completely with Basha. I think um, it's quite extraordinary that as kind of Southern Europe burns, we're kind of just we seem to be just floating around the sea like a lost ship. But I would I would like to know something from Giles, um, who actually benefits from these projects. For example, in Norway, it's quite clear who benefits from their North Sea projects or has benefited. The Nor- Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund is for all Norwegian citizens. I'd like to know a bit about who's making profit here? I mean, who's benefiting from these projects? Is, in the, the, UK? is the line about energy security legit? Uh, yes, in that if we're in an age where we're constantly facing potential Russian invasions of another place and, and sanctions that upend the world energy market, we need to focus a little more on, on our supply. No, in the sense that the North Sea, as explained, is never going to meet that supply. But there is another constituency of people to answer your question about who benefits. And it's supposed to be the 21,000 people in Aberdeen who face losing their jobs if the North Sea is shut down completely. If it just segues from being an extraction place to a sequestration place, you preserve those jobs. Ditto uh, Humberside, for example, which until now was the great big hope of carbon capture and storage in the UK. You remember the darling of the Tories, Ben Hooshan, the mayor of yep. Teesside, yep. was a big promoter of carbon capture and storage as a sort of central activity of the revived Humberside industrial wasteland. Um, that's actually going nowhere fast in the end. It was very, very um, uh, auspicious. Um, BP remains an important investor. Shell's pulled out, however. Um, so if this happens in Aberdeen, It'll be the first big one in the UK. They've sort of earmarked potential clusters for CCS. They're quite serious about doing it at scale. But it's a big if uh, because, as one uh, professor of carbon capture and storage said on the radio this morning, you need to add a couple of zeros to the kind of sums that the UK government is currently thinking of investing to get that carbon price up to a level where it's actually commercially viable for people to be burying all this carbon there. Interesting. Okay. (laughs) I'm not hopeful because... uh. (laughs) Um, All right. Thank you, Giles. We're going to go on now to Will. I can't remember what you said the headline was. Uh, It was a pun. uh, Was it a pun? I wasn't sure. I just panicked. Um, (laughs) Coup no more. Coup no more. Okay, yeah. um, So we're going to Niger, right? uh, Yeah, so we're going to Niger. And so I think this is actually one of the most important stories of of the last month. But it's kind of rested generally around 10th or 13th on the BBC News website for most of the time. So basically, uh, Niger's president, a democratically elected president, a man called Mohamed Bazoum, was last week detained, uh, imprisoned by his presidential guard, who then went on to 
declare the immediate suspension of all the, the, the different institutions and political bodies in the country. And they've declared a new government. And why this matters is because there's been more than half a dozen coups in West Africa over the last, uh, over the last four years. And I think I want to break this down into two different things. So on the local level, on a regional level, what you've got in this vast band of countries, which uh, just right underneath the Sahara called the Sahel. Uh, so I'm talking here about Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, Chad, Sudan. Now, you, we're in a situation right now where all of those countries either are in a civil war or have a man uh, in military fatigues who is running those countries after a recent coup. Now, these are countries which are what, what you're fundamentally seeing here is these countries are struggling. The UN has described these countries as the as the ground zero for climate change, for global warming, jihadist insurgency spreading across Mali, Burkina Faso and Niger. And these countries are struggling. The political institutions of these fragile states are cracking under the pressure. And so 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 what you've got is a region that up until recently was moving towards uh, more democratic, liberal, uh, liberal institutions, civil society was flourishing, particularly in Niger and Mali. And this is being reined back. On a, on a so sorry, Will. What what you're saying is that this big stripe of countries that all join together across mm. the wide bit of Africa. Mm. Forgive my yes. technology, yeah, yeah, yeah. technological uh, geography knowledge. Uh, they are the test bed for what's going to happen across the rest of that continent and thereafter the world because they can't handle the climate change impact and millions of people struggling to survive. Mm. And as a consequence, their democratic systems can't cope. Is that what you're saying? That's that's partially that's partially right. it. Um, I think this is this is a region of the world with about 150 to 200 million people in it, right. and what you're seeing is a massive reversal of democratic gains. Uh, you're seeing uh, strong men coming into the to to the foreground, and you're seeing Russia also making gains in this region. For example, Russia, two of its main income sources now from Mali, where it is uh, mining a huge amount of gold, and also from Central African Republic. I mean, obviously, Russia has many income sources, but these are a key part of it. So the reporting on what um, has happened in Niger has made a sort of throw forward to say, with Niger now, having had this coup, Mm. it makes it vulnerable Mm. to having, for Russia to sort of take a hold in that region and leverage it to its advantage. Is that what the next uh, exactly. step is? Uh, exactly, right. that's the potential. But however, we're actually potentially looking at a, a, a maybe a, a potential military intervention in Niger because... By who? Uh, by ECOWAS, which is the West African re- regional political body. Right. A bit like uh, like the EU or right. something like that, but, but in, in West Africa. And so they are led by Nigeria, which is a, a, the demo- democratic yeah. powerhouse in the region. Nigeria is saying, no, unless the constitutional order is restored within one week and the president released and then reinstated, uh, all tools are basically on the table to re-establish constitutional order. Therefore, uh, code words for potential military intervention. And we know that, and then there's other actors potentially in that military intervention. It would be one, number one, ECOWAS, it would be potentially Chad, and it would be France, which has 1,500 troops in Niger itself and uses it as a hub for its counter-jihadist insurgency across the region. Okay, so there's a reason why these stories run 12th and 13th in the BBC, which is, you know, this is your work. You live and breathe it. You mm. understand the region. You mm. go there a lot. Mm. Um, but it's taken you sort of several minutes to explain mm. to me mm. what's happened. Mm. And we're only just now getting into the, and this is why it matters mm. for the rest mm. of the world. Mm. So try and sort of hit me up with a, a, a kind of two sentence version for if you're in a lift. How does it, how, why do I care sitting here in London? 
Why do you care sitting here in London? Well, yeah. Niger um, for, for 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 years was the was the key and is the key transit route for African migrants coming to the uh, coming to Europe European right. shores. The EU has invested hundreds of millions of euros preventing uh, to stop migration migrants crossing Niger. When they did that, no, migration numbers fell across uh, across the Sahara from something in the region of in the hundreds of thousands to about fifty thousand a year. What do you spend that money on out of interest? If I'm the EU and I want to stop people travelling through Niger... You invest in the Nigerian security forces right. who then will go on raids uh, against different uh, human smugglers um, who see. will kind of pay for Nigerian army to have fuel in their cars to go and patrol their borders. And all that money has stopped as a consequence of the coup? The EU has um, suspended all financial aid and budgetary support to Niger, yeah. Okay. Giles, these types of stories are hard going. They're what James might call chewy. Mm-hmm. What do we do with this? I think you, you de-chew them. I, th- I think they're kind of dramatic. I think you mm. do a map. Yeah. Maps and arrows. <laughs> Love Maps it. and arrows to s- show what a big hot part of the world it is. Yeah. Uh, arrows to show, uh, to answer your question, movement Liz, about the mo- movement of people. I think... Also, it's a sort of dramatic story because it shows how wickedly clever Russian foreign policy is there. Mm. It's low cost, high impact, mm. targeting elites. Just to give you an idea of the lowness of the cost, um, this is all about paying for a very small number of very heavily armed people to go there and cause mayhem. It's not about humanitarian aid or investment. Russian humanitarian aid to sub-Saharan Africa is one hundredth of the UK's. Russia accounts for just 2% of all foreign direct investment mm. in Africa. So it's a minnow compared with the West or China, China with its Belt and Road Initiative. But it sure knows how to cause a stink yeah. uh, with, uh, with its mercenaries yeah. and its um, slightly sinister political consultants bag-carrying for dictators. Basha? I think it's a fascinating story, and I I know that you will have been uh, keen to say that it's more complicated than a story about Russian influence abroad, mm. and, and there are lots more elements to this. But I saw it in the context of what we saw happen last week in St. Petersburg, where there was a Russia-Africa uh, conference, where lots of leaders of various African countries were taken to to, to St. Petersburg and lots of these new initiatives were announced that you know that Russia was going to offer free grain to six key African countries as a way of kind of expanding influence and as Giles says sort of in, in a, particularly in the context of the uh, collapse of the grain the Black Sea grain deal um, with Ukraine so I see it as part of this much bigger tapestry of you know it might not be directly related in this case to Russia but I think there's it creates, as you said, Liz, more instability, more vulnerability, where we can see there's a shift in the geopolitical axis in these countries. And I think this forms part of that bigger story. Yeah. We're going to take a break um, and then we're going to come to Basha's story. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. 
I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous women of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Okay, Basha. Okay, well, this is not a cheery story, but I think it's a very important story. So um, I'm just going to tell you about a woman first called Rihanna Cleary, who was 18 years old when she was incarcerated in HMP Bronzefield, and she was pregnant at the time. And the reason I'm telling you this story about her now is because a coroner has just issued a report concluding that there were widespread failures, both by a hospital and by the prison, in how she was treated as a pregnant woman, uh, because when she did finally give birth, her child died. And the circumstances around how her child died are really harrowing. And that's why I said medieval injustice, because I think this points to a huge problem that we have with our justice system. So she was, um, in 2018, so a year before this happened, she was Uh, classified by social workers as an extremely vulnerable 17-year-old. She had had a traumatic childhood uh, featuring neglect and abuse. Uh, uh, There was evidence that she was being groomed by gangs and that she had been involved in county lines uh, and that she was a heavy drug and cannabis user and that she had had suicidal thoughts. And uh, she was documented to be pregnant but hadn't really engaged in maternity services she hadn't had an ultrasound so there was it wasn't totally clear how far along she was and all the rest but she was informed at some point between sort of first coming into contact with police custody and going into prison uh, a couple of months later that when she gave birth it was likely that her child would be taken away immediately and later on officials were talking about that child then being put up immediately for adoption and she was informed of this so she became terrified that any engagement with maternity services would result in her child being immediately taken away from her which I think coloured the entire way that she then engaged with prison staff, prison officers and nurses. Throughout her time in HMP Bronzefield, which is Europe's largest women's prison, um, there was a kind of breakdown in how she was being treated. She was incredibly hostile and and very scared and anxious about what was going to happen to her baby. Um, And in September of 2019, she was alone in her cell when she went into labour. She tried to get help twice, rang a buzzer, no help was sent. The baby was born at some point the next morning um, and they were discovered uh, by a prison officer and by that point the baby was no longer alive. And one of the things that the inquest tried to determine was whether the baby was born was stillborn or whether it had died soon mm. after birth because she'd had no medical treatment. So just to be clear, this was an 18-year-old girl who was alone in her cell in labour for 12 hours, gave birth alone. Uh, there are... It was documented that prison officers came by to check on her. 
shone a torch, could see that she was on all fours, but didn't go in, didn't didn't make any more inquiries. So that's sort of the facts of the case, and that is Rihanna Cleary's story. But I think this is a much bigger story than just one woman's horrendous experience and the death of a baby. There are lots of reasons why I think this is so important. So one is that um, in the in the inquest, it became clear that there were some quite extreme racial stereotypes about how she, in how, that were evident in how she was being treated. So she was called a gangster by prison officers, and that's obviously in the context that we know that black women have a have worse maternal mortality rates mm-hmm. than the rest of the population, whether they're in prison or outside. And we know that there are 196 pregnant women in prison up until March of 2023. And the highest number of pregnant women in prison was actually in January this year, 58 women. And that is unusual. There are other countries that refuse to send pregnant women to so jail. 58 women in this country were, were 58 pregnant women were sent to prison in January this year. We're in the prison system. We're in the prison system. That's the highest single month number. Oh, I see. So it's not that since this happened in 2019, we've responded by sending fewer women to prison who are pregnant. That number has got mm. was at its highest this year. Um, there are at least 11 other countries around the world, including Brazil, Russia, Ukraine, and Mexico, who do not incarcerate pregnant women. They find other ways including community sentences, probation, supervision, house arrests, electronic monitoring. There are other ways to deal with women who are in conflict with the law who are also pregnant. And there are lots of um, studies and and charities who say that even a very short custodial sentence while a woman is pregnant causes huge stress, is is, more likely to have um, negative outcomes to both the mother and the child. And also when I was reading about this case, I was amazed to come across the fact that in England, um, pregnancy is not seen as a mitigating factor in sentencing guidelines. So when a woman is sentenced for a crime, mm. it is not taken into account that whether she's pregnant or not. And that seems to be a remarkable mm. blind spot. And there's no requirement for a woman's pregnancy uh, to be assessed when people are sentencing. In summary, I think there's a bigger question here should we change how we treat pregnant women who are in conflict with the law? And the ombud, the prison and probation ombudsman um, did say in an earlier report before this inquest report came out, said that um, all pregnant women in prison should be deemed high-risk pregnancies and that change has then gone on to be made. So we can see a little bit of change as a result of what happened to Rihanna Cleary and her child but I think it shows that there is so much more that needs to be done. Uh, Will, what do you make of this story? Um, I think it's absolutely harrowing and I think it speaks to a much, uh, as as Basha says, it speaks to a much wider point, which is this kind of idea we have in the society, which is um, which in Britain, which is out of sight, out of mind. Mm. And I mean, I, I've kind of read in the past some brilliant research, for example, dealing with another aspect of, of, of prisons about how much more likely it is that if you're a prisoner with cancer, and you're going to die from it, and how, how many obstacles there are just to getting care on that. Giles? I'm struck by the contrast between the, the narrowness of the focus of the story one woman, one baby, a total of two um, deaths of babies in prison, which I suppose statistically is, uh, I mean, perhaps by some measures a defensible number given the size of the 
British population and the breadth of the issues you raised. I mean, I think it is a very powerful litmus test for whether we're a civilized country at all. I think it's a heck of a story. And more particularly, it's a story that has been laid out for us by an inquest. So it would be um, professional uh, neglect not to promote it. It's it's one thing to have a hard-hearted, out-of-sight, out-of-mind view about the mother or those boys in Crook and Wood who've um, fallen foul of the law for one reason or another. Um, it's another to to say that their babies don't count either. You know, that's that's a, that's a step again, isn't it? Which is really what we're talking about. OK, thank you very much, um, all of you. Uh, before I make a decision about which story to lead with... I want to know what you would pick, but obviously you can't choose your own. So we've got Coup in Niger, we've got Rihanna Cleary, and we've got carbon capture and storage in Aberdeen. Giles. We never got to the sunflowers, did we? No. Do you want to do the sunflowers quickly? Very qu- very quickly. There's a farmer in Kansas who's planted uh, 80 acres of sunflowers to celebrate what I thought was his wife's uh, 80th birthday, but no, it's their 50th birthday. There's no obvious um, numerical correlation there, but it's 1.2 million sunflowers. And I thought it was a sweet story, but I also am really, really struck by the speed with which sunflowers grow and their power as carbon sequestrators might oh. be better than caverns under the sea. Paint the world yellow. Paint the world yellow. You can all get on yeah. board with that, Charles. Yeah. As to which story, I would say uh, Rihanna Cleary, because... It's so compelling. And what's the point of the inquest if we don't tell that story? It has a beginning and middle and an end. And I, 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 I'm not even getting into the substance of the story. By contrast, Niger, there's so much we still don't know about it. Basha? I'm going to go with Niger because I like a challenge. And I think it is a very challenging story to make people care about and to make them understand the... Um, the broader implications. I think we probably need to think again about how we frame it and how we sort of, what's the most direct way of making people understand the significance of this coup. I think it is helpful to see it in the context of Russia, but not ascribe that single uh, motivating factor behind why it happened. But I think it falls, yeah, it's part of this bigger kind of chess game that's going on. And for that reason, I think it's important. Will? Uh, I go with Basha's story. Uh, I think it's um, extraordinarily moving and uh, it speaks to a much wider problem in British society, which is the state of our prisons, uh, the state of how we treat prisoners and, and, and how often these, these, these places end up just being almost a, 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 a factory for new offenders. OK, this is what I think. We're here to pick the news that matters most, not necessarily the news that sells. I wish I had a newspaper to allocate stories to today because... You can imagine it, can't you? I can very much. I'm going to describe it to you now, Giles. Stand by. Um, With your story, Giles, um, I want to see diagrams. I want to see machinery. We talked about um, how the process works. I also need a visual of how the economics don't add up. That all to sort of be laid out... On the one hand, we've got 100 new licences. On the other hand, we've got some capturing going on. 
you know, that whole thing. You I, need I, a seesaw. I, I, like I need a seesaw. I need a seesaw because I think that's the only way that we can understand politically what does Sunak want us to believe about his commitment or otherwise to 2050 net zero um, and how he balances that against, uh, you know, economic considerations, jobs, uh, enterprise and all of that stuff. Um, Will, with your story, we do need a map with arrows to really understand the sort of pressure and the dynamics. We need colour coding because it is hard to explain this stuff. And I think Bash is exactly right. It's a, it's a get out when we always say, you know, it's world news, it's far away, help me understand why, why it matters. Um, I kind of don't think that's good enough. That's a big slice of the world. As Basha explained, there's a sort of shift in the geopolitical axis that we let ourselves off the hook by going... You know, that's a bit too hard. It's a bit too difficult. I think it does matter. I think you're right to say it matters for its own sake, not just in the context of Russia. But obviously, Russia is is an element that's going to help to bring people into the story. Basha, with Rihanna Cleary's story, um, it's very harrowing. As Giles says, it's neatly packaged because it's come with its inquest. But because I led with Crook and Wood last week, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to go... Niger, Rihanna second, and then diagrams of sunflowers, ammonia, sludge and others um, uh, third. Um, Because I think we have to challenge ourselves as a newsroom. Will looks absolutely staggered. He can't believe that that the decision's (laughs) gone that way. Um, I think we do have to challenge ourselves as a newsroom. You can't always pick the easy ones. And for that reason, that's my decision. So thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Well and Giles, well and Basha, well and Will. Have a great rest of the day. If you think we've missed a story, then please do write to us. We really want to hear what you think on newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. And Giles, you'll be back on this side of the table on Friday. And until then, have a great week. Thanks for listening. Tortoise. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.